0: But if I should die before I wake, I pray her soul you'll keep. Forgive her, Lord, she doesn't know that you gave life to me. I must tell you that for you and me to approach a subject as delicate and as controversial as the subject of abortion is, is going to take all the grace that God can muster. I realize that politically this is a hot-button issue these few days before the nation goes to the polls on Tuesday. I also realize that pastorally, as Pastor Tim prayed a moment ago, God often calls pastors to Comfort the afflicted and afflict the comfortable. And I also realize that this is not only political, this is not only pastoral, but this is personal. And some of you sitting right here that are a part of the ongoing saga. And so I need to pray and then I'll read a story to you. I want to pray with you that the Spirit might somehow in this supercharged moment in our nation's history give us the clarity and the Christian compassion we need to make the right decisions. Let's pray. Oh God, who can resist the voice of a little one calling to us? But we need the voice of the Father of us all to be the one that calls to us just now. And so as we go to Holy Scripture, dear God, let what we read become third millennial for us. Let it compel us with clarity and compassion. We pray through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. I want to read a story to you that appeared just this Sunday in the Los Angeles Times. It's a part of our continuing series this season, pulpit series, Human Sexuality in the Third Millennial Family. And when I found this story, I knew it was the right one to share. It's Dateline, La Kremlin Bicetre, the country of France. just appeared on Sunday. For Charlotte, a 28-year-old single French woman who works for an Internet company, The RU-486 abortion pill was no miracle drug. Two weeks after taking it, she still hurts and still bleeds. But the hardest part for for the gentle, sensitive Parisian was being the central actor in the abortion itself. There was no anesthesia, no wake-up-and-it's-over relief. She wasn't even at a clinic at the critical time. Instead, it happened as she sat on the toilet in in her boyfriend's apartment alone. I was worried about having to participate. She's trying to explain now to the reporter why, in fact, she made the choice to go with the pills rather than with the normal suction form of abortion. I was worried about having to participate, about seeing things, about the blood, the young woman says, speaking on condition that her last name not be used. An abortion by surgery would have been hard, harder, Charlotte said. It's a violation of the body. What a horror! And so after ingesting three RU486 pills and being injected with the drug postagladin, Charlotte was taken by her boyfriend from the clinic to a small studio apartment on the right bank in Paris to to try to get some sleep. She lay down, but soon felt things stirring inside her, bleeding heavily. She got up and went to the toilet. I felt fragile morally and physically, Charlotte says. Even that word expulsion, I really don't like it. It's too clinical. Soon after it was over, her boyfriend returned home, bearing two presents, a sweater and a bracelet. An unwanted pregnancy, and boy, does he get off fairly cheap. Just a sweater and a bracelet. I guess the man never has to pay the price, does he? Charlotte got up, looked at herself in the mirror, and cried a lot. This happened on Friday. The next Monday, she was back at work. After all, life goes on. Goes on all except, of course, for that little life that the two of them, the two of them aborted. RU 486. Look at that Time magazine cover. Just five weeks ago. The Food and Drug Administration of the United States government finally gave its, as it were, good housekeeping seal of approval on this yellowish-white tablet, soon to be available at abortion clinics and most doctor's offices across the nation. RU-486. How how, how does Charlotte, I'm intrigued by that line of hers, how did she put it after she had ingested the pill? An an abortion by surgery would have been harder, she says, it's a violation of the body. What a horror. You know, ladies and gentlemen, I want to, with you, grant her every a, a bit of understanding here, but it's strange, her analysis of abortion. It's a, she speaks of her body. It's a violation and a horror, but nary, not a single word about the horror and the violation of another body that was eliminated with the ingestion of that drug. Turn with me for a moment to the tale of another womb. In fact, there are two wombs in this tale. A tale of two wombs. That's our journey this Sabbath, this glorious day. Open your Bible, please, to the Gospel of St. Luke. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. A tale of two wombs. Go ahead and count them. Two wombs. One story. The Gospel of Luke, chapter 1. I'm in the New Revised Standard Version. That's just a... Small little vignette. We'll pick it up in verse 39. Luke chapter 1, verse 39. In those days, Mary set out... Now, who's this Mary? This is the Mary who is not yet married. This is the Mary who is pregnant, though unmarried. This is an unwed mother. In those days, Mary set out and went with haste to a Judean town in the hill country, where she entered the house of Zechariah and greeted Elizabeth. When Elizabeth heard Mary's greetings, the child leaped in her womb. There it is. Womb number one. And and Elizabeth was filled with the Holy Spirit and exclaimed with a loud cry, Whoa, blessed are you among women and blessed is the fruit of your womb. There it is. Womb number two. And why has this happened to me that the mother of my Lord comes to me? For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. Ah, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her. By the Lord. Ladies and gentlemen, mark it in your Bible. There are two wombs in that single vignette. Two childs, if you please. I know the plural is children. Two childs. One womb is six months pregnant. That would be the second trimester. The other womb has just been fertilized, as it were. It's in the first trimester. Two wombs, two childs, by the way, not two fetal tissues, not two uterine growths, not two embryonic appendages. Mary calls the child. Uh, Elizabeth rather calls the child within her. She says, "This is my child," and she calls the child that is beginning within Mary, "My Lord." In fact, Doctor Luke. By the way, he was a physician. Dr. Luke, who related this account to us, is very careful in the choice, pardon me, of the word for child, brephos in the Greek. The very same word, when when Elizabeth says, this child in me, the very same word Luke will use in chapter 2 to describe the newborn Christ child. Mark it down, ladies and gentlemen, please. Whether the child is in the womb or outside the womb, it is the same word. It is a child. A tale of two wombs. A tale of two childs. One became the greatest prophet ever to come out of a womb, and the other became our Savior, the Lord Jesus. And and this is what is so fascinating. Look at at an amazing observation. Please note this. Both infant boys were filled with the Holy Spirit before they were born. That same chapter. Take a look at this verse. What is this? Verse 15. Gabriel comes. Zachariah is wide-eyed, gaping, mouth. He cannot believe the word, but here it is. Verse 15. Gabriel speaking. For he, that's going to be John the baptizer, for he will be great in the sight of the Lord. He must never drink wine or strong drink. Even before his birth, he will be filled with the Holy Spirit. Same Gabriel goes to a young teenager in the town of Nazareth, a virgin, and announces to her, what's this? Verse 35, same chapter. And the angel said to her, to Mary, the Holy Spirit will come upon you and the power of the Most High will overshadow you. Therefore, the child to be born will be holy. He will be called the Son of God. My friends, mark it down. Both infant boys were filled with the Holy Spirit before... Before they were born. Apparently, it doesn't matter to God whether you're in your first trimester or in your second trimester. If you're there, apparently the Holy Spirit is not too picky. He can fill that life and possess it. And by the way, the Holy Spirit only fills human beings. He does not fill organisms. Little tiny people He fills. Persons. Even before they're born, they're persons Before they're born. For a few moments. I I wish you would join me in just marveling at this miracle of life. You came this way. I came this way. Doesn't matter where you were born. Anywhere on the planet. We all came the same way. Let's take a look at this miracle. Can you believe this? There you are. Three to four weeks old. Look at that. Not real attractive at this stage. But life life has started. You're already developing the very humanness that will make you a unique creation when when you come into this life beyond your mother's womb. Let's go to the next one. What's this? Month two. Now, it's a little uh, because of the daylight here, but that little, that little fetus has its hands right up here. It's in the placenta. This is just month two. Eight weeks old. Let's go to the next one, please. Development of human hands. Now, look at that. Six weeks, seven weeks, eight weeks, and 12 weeks. By 12 weeks, you know what? The fingerprints are all there. This child has an identity. Now, let's look at the human feet. I tell you, feet have always been ugly. Even inside the womb, feet are ugly. I'm, I'm embarrassed, but we, go, we went ahead and put it up. There by the 12 weeks at the end, can you see it? That's a human foot. The print is there, ready to go. Now, let's go on. Month four, oh, the little form is developing. There are, there are the appendages, just as we use them today. Let's go on, please, to month five and six. Look it. They caught this baby sucking its thumb in its mother's womb. Isn't that something? That's why we do it so naturally once we come out. It starts early. Months 7 through 9, you have now a human being in full form, ready to go during months 7 through 9. Next picture. There you are when you came out. That masked doctor telling your mama, it's okay. She, he has made it fine. Ladies and gentlemen, apparently... That little life is precious enough for the Holy Spirit to fill in the first trimester, second trimester, or third trimester. The Holy Spirit fills only human beings. It does not fill organisms, but tiny little people, persons even before they were born. Which is why God, who birthed Jesus and John, also birthed Jeremiah. Take a look at this. Jeremiah chapter 1, verse 4. Now, the word of the Lord came to me, saying... Hey, Jerry, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you. I knew you before you were in your mama's tummy. Before you were born, I consecrated you. I appointed you a prophet to the nations. I've known about you. I knew you before you got into that uterus. I knew you. I chose you. I called you. One more. David, he is so excited. He said, I cannot believe that... Way before God, you ever, I ever knew you, you knew me. This is Psalm 139, take a look at this. Verse 13, For it was you, O God, who formed my inward parts. All those parts that were growing, you knit me together in my mother's womb. Somebody was at work in mama's womb, and that's God himself. I praise you for I have fearfully and wonderfully made. Wonderful are your works. That I know very well. My frame was not hidden from you. When I was being made, oh God, in secret, intricately woven in the depths of the earth, I wasn't hidden. Your eyes beheld my un. Formed substance. In your book were written all the days that were formed for me when none of them as yet existed. I want to tell you something, ladies and gentlemen. There is not a human being here today that has not already been planned for by God. There is never a moment in your life when you need to seriously and realistically conclude, there is no purpose for my life. David reminds us that before you were born, God got the book out. He said, all right, he's coming. This is my purpose for Her, That's my purpose for Him. You never have to kick yourself around the block, not on this campus, not in the community, not anywhere on this world. You were willed into existence. If you are breathing right now, Almighty God has a plan for your life. You haven't found it yet? Hallelujah! He's going to help you. He has a reason you live today. You're alive because God wanted you from the very beginning. Wow! You may have thought your destiny first became a reality when you choked on that first lungful of air outside your mama's tomb. But I want you to take note, ladies and gentlemen, the Bible jubilantly declares God knew you and planned for you before you ever saw the light of day. Nobody, nobody goes out of here saying my life is worth nothing. You're watching on television right now. Your life has been planned for. By the God of the universe. Which means if He brought you here, He's committed to carrying you all the way through. But in that context, I want to share with you an historical perspective. This is not an hysterical perspective. This is historical. We need to do this in the light of where we are in time. I must say that because a human being is this tiny, 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 in the beginning, this tiny, tiny, tiny little person in mama's tummy... It came as a shock to many when the United States Supreme Court ruled in its controversial landmark decision in 1973, Roe v. Wade, that the human fetus was not a person with legal rights of protection and therefore the privacy of the mother outweighed the protection of the fetus, which meant that the mother was given the right to decide the fate of her unborn child without undue governmental or societal interference. Now, the court was clear Oh, no, no, no. Yes. The the unborn is human. It is just not yet a person. In fact, their words are, it has a potential life. But that potential does not give it yet a legal right as a person. You know, I would like to sit down with Elizabeth and Mary and explain to them that that which is within them has no legal right yet. How are, you, how are you going to tell that to that young maid? How are you going to tell that to that aged matriarch? Your child has no right, no protection. That what God has already filled in the first trimester really can't be protected. Not even in the second trimester. Oh yes, non-persons. Whoa, our country knows all about non-persons to be sure. Listen carefully. In 1857, in its landmark Dred Scott case... Known technically as Scott v. Sanford, the United States Supreme Court ruled that the black race was less than human and that a black slave was the property of the white slave owner. To free a slave, this is how the court reasoned, that would violate the Fifth Amendment by causing undue financial hardship to the white slave owner. Apparently, the slave owner is more truly human than the slave. You don't believe me? I want you to read the words. Chief Justice Taney, himself a slaveholder, by the way, wrote the majority opinion and he appeals to history for the opinion. These are his words. The, they, the blacks, had for more than a century been regarded as beings of an inferior order and altogether unfit to associate with a white race, either in social or political relations, and so far inferior that they had no rights which the white man was bound to respect. And that the Negro, and he left it lowercase, and that the Negro might justly and lawfully be reduced to slavery for his own benefit. He was bought and sold and treated as an ordinary article of merchandise and traffic, whatever profit could be made by it. Ladies and gentlemen, in that astounding ruling. The Supreme Court declared that black slaves were not legal persons, but rather they were possessions. They were property that could be disposed of at the whim or wish of the slave owner. Now, I want you to follow the logic. Just just hang on for a moment. If you can rule one human being a non-person, as it were, then the fate of the non-person will be subject to the other human being that you rule... Oh, no, this one is really a person. So the person can decide the fate of the non person Superior persons can determine the fate of inferior non-persons, as it were. Which, in the end, the 1973 abortion ruling Roe v. Wade has done. It it has differentiated among humans those who are persons and those who are not not yet persons. By that very careful legal distinction in both rulings, the Supreme Court was legally able to deny protection to two categories of human life. Slaves and the unborn. It was done in court. Now, fortunately, hallelujah, 11 years after the Dred Scott decision, after the Civil War, Congress overturned the Supreme Court decision by passing the 13th and 14th Amendments that declared of the United States Constitution that gave to all living human beings the legal protection of persons. All living beings, except, of course, for the unborn. No protection for them. They are not yet persons worthy of legal defense. I'm telling you, folks, it is utterly incongruous to me. I I don't understand this. We as Americans, in the third millennium, we would find this absolutely repulsive that somehow you would declare a certain segment of the human race inferior by racial basis. And yet we, the same Americans, are willing to allow over one Million abortions a year. All because the same institution that declared blacks inferior 120 years earlier declared that the unborn are not yet deserving of legal protection. They are non-persons. Potential life, not yet. I repeat, what the court ruled about the slaves, it essentially ruled about the unborn. Inferior life forms, non-persons, unprotected by the law. For as soon as I heard the sound of your greeting, the child in my womb leaped for joy. Ah, blessed is she who believed that there would be a fulfillment of what was spoken to her by the Lord. I ask you, my friend, are the unborn really only non-persons? Adolf Hitler, in his final solution during the Third Reich, eventually declared the Jews... You are non-persons now. Economically, that would be helpful. Unessential for the good and growth of our fatherland. You are now non-persons. Richard Fredericks, in a disturbing analysis of Hitler's final solution, notes that the seeds of evil were actually planted back in 1920 in a book that was published in Leipzig, Germany. Title of the book, The Release of the Destruction of Life Devoid of Value. Now, I read this, and I want to put the quote on the screen in a moment. I read this, and I'm saying to myself, is, it, is, is this going to happen to America? Has it already begun to happen to us in a culture of death? Take a look at this. In this volume, German psychiatrist Alfred Hoke and lawyer Carl Binding declared the Hippocratic oath obsolete. What the doctors, you know, the oath they take to preserve life, that's obsolete now. They deny that there is an absolute right to life. They decried the wasted manpower, patience, and capital investment needed to keep life not worth living alive, those are their words. Hoke and Binding forcefully argued that the terminally ill, the unproductive, the feeble minded and the and all useless eaters, those are their words, have the right to complete relief of an unbearable life and should be given death with dignity. That's why before there ever was a Jew that went to the gas chambers in Germany, 250,000 Germans in advance of them, World War I veterans who were amputees, the incontinent elderly and the gypsies, were all taken to camps where they could find the better life through death. Finally, the Nuremberg race laws declared that gypsies, Jews and half-breeds, those are children part Jewish by heritage, have lost all rights to legal protection. Notice what happens. It begins with the taking away from human beings of rights of legal protection, slowly dissolving, disintegrating that protective right. In the name of economic stability and social health, I mean, I can't afford it, please. Although the word, you know, terminate, they use the word terminate. It really wasn't terminate. You put the word, look at termination. That's not the word. The word is extermination. That's the word. Jean Staker Garten, a former abortion activist, has written a book, Who Broke the Baby? In this book, she discusses how the language propaganda of the Third Reich has actually been embraced today by the abortion industry in the United States. She tells how counselors are being taught to describe the baby as interuterine tissue, the blob. Don't ever call the baby the baby. Whatever you do, they're taught. She tells how the rights of the woman and her freedom to choose are the words that are stressed. And childless couples are praised as child-free at abortion clinics that are dubbed Centers for Reproductive Health. Now, I know you've heard that. What an anomaly. Centers for Reproductive Health? Please. Please. That's a classic euphemism for terminate. And I remind you, terminate is just two letters away from exterminate. As the, author, as the author writes, imagine a history class. I see some history professors here. Imagine, professor, you get up in front of your class and you say, Lee Harvey Oswald interrupted John F. Kennedy's presidency. And yet the industry speaks of a, an interruption, a pregnancy interruption. Interruption of pregnancy. The height of this language propaganda was blatantly evident when a paper presented by Dr. Willard Cates in Miami was read to the Planned Parenthood Physicians Association. Here's the title of the paper. I'll put it on the screen for you to see. Abortion as a Treatment of Unwanted Pregnancy, the Number Two Sexually Transmitted Disease. Ladies and gentlemen, what is going, what, what is happening to America? I mean, no longer even with Roe v. Wade potential life, now the fetus is called... A sexually transmitted disease. What is happening to this nation? Do you know what happens in America? Do you know know that in 1999, over one million babies were aborted in this sophisticated nation? Every 30 seconds, a baby in America is aborted. Every 30 seconds. You say, oh, come on, Dwight. Well, we know the reason. It's rape, incest, the life of the mother. Ninety-seven percent of those one million plus had nothing to do with rape, incest, or the life of the mother. Ninety-seven percent of those abortions last year were performed for matters of personal convenience. It became a method of birth control, getting rid of an unwanted pregnancy. Roughly, listen to this statistic. Roughly one half of women who had abortions had no other children. It isn't like, you know, I I I have so many kids to feed, I just can't take one more. No, they didn't have any. Forty-four percent of women who had abortions had at least one previous one. Twenty percent of the women who had abortions were married. Eighty percent were unmarried. And the highest abortion rate in the age group is the age group at Andrews University. Eighteen to nineteen-year-old women. The highest abortion rate. What has happened to us? You say, oh, come on, Dwight. What is the problem? Why are you always talking about the women? Where are the men in this story? And you are absolutely right. For every statistic on that screen that was a woman, there was a man somewhere who was culpable for that statistic. I want to say the word to the young men who are here who are saying, well, boy, I'm sure glad that they're getting this straight for these girls around here. I'm telling you, sir, you are the culpable one. In fact, it will be laid at the doorstep of the man more than the woman. The guilt of abortion... That woman cannot get pregnant without you being the aggressor. It only works that way. Do I have to put it on a screen to show you? She can't get pregnant on her own. You have to be the aggressor. She can't grab you, you grab her. Then she gets pregnant. Where are the boys? We want to take responsibility. Oh, this is a woman's problem. I hope, they get, I hope Lamson Hall really deals with this. I know what others of you are saying. You know, Dwight, you're, you're, very, you're very heartless. I mean, it's easy for a man to stand up front and deal with a woman's issue here, but I have a right to choose. I have, I have reproductive freedom. Yes, you do, ma'am. Yes, you do. But I wouldn't suggest by that that there's been no way for the rest of us to measure the pain That has ensued from an abortion. Because I had a little girl come in. She was a mother for a while. She is no longer a mother now. And she came in and she sat down. And I am telling you the gospel truth. She began to cry and cry and sob hysterically. You know why she's crying? Just what you saw in this plate. Exactly what you saw. After he gets her pregnant and talks her into the abortion, he says, I don't love you. I am not sure yet where my life is going. Adios, senorita. And he left her high and dry. She's lost her boyfriend and now she has lost her baby. And she's sitting there. She doesn't know what else to do. She's just sobbing. Well, what else would you do? Do you know what now? Psychiatrists are analyzing post-abortion trauma. That's what they're calling it. In fact, they're naming it after the post-traumatic stress syndrome, PTSD, that came out of Vietnam. Remember when the Vietnam vets came back and they were all messed up and they just couldn't hang on to life? They're now finding that is exactly what is happening to young women who are going through abortion. They are calling it the post-abortion trauma. I want want you to see this, sir. I want want the young fellows to see this. This is what you do. This is what she lives with many times for the rest of her life. I want to put these 10 characteristics of this post stress trauma. Number one, there's a re experiencing the event through vivid memories and flashbacks. Number two, there's a feeling of being emotionally numb. Number three, there's feeling overwhelmed by or diminished interest in performing normal tasks. Number four, developing unusual interests. Number five, crying uncontrollably. Number six, isolating oneself from family and friends, avoiding social situations. Number seven, relying increasingly on alcohol or drugs to get through the day. Number eight, being extremely moody, irritable, angry, suspicious, or frightened. Number nine, experiencing disturbance in sleep, either too much or too little and nightmares. Number ten, feeling afraid and a sense of doom about the future. And all because, sir, you lay with that woman and impregnated her and then walked away and told her, get rid of the growth in your stomach. You did it and now she suffers. Thank you, sir. Awfully thoughtful of you. A physician who's performed over 20,000 abortions. Listen to the abortion. He's called an abortionist. That's what he does for a living. Dr. Julius Fogel, listen to this. I found this profound that this would come from his lips, an abortionist. Abortion is an impassioned subject. Every woman, whatever her age, background or sexuality, has a trauma at destroying a pregnancy. A level of humanness is touched. This is a part of her own life. She destroys a pregnancy. She is destroying herself. There is no way it can be innocuous. One is dealing with a life force. It is totally beside the point. Whether or not you think a life is there, you cannot deny that something is being created and that this creation is physically happening. Often the trauma may sink into the unconscious and never surface in the woman's lifetime. But it is not as harmless and as casual an event as many in the pro-abortion crowd insist, writes the abortionist. A psychological price is paid. It may be alienation. It may be pushing away from human warmth. Perhaps a hardening of the maternal instinct. Something happens on the deeper levels of a woman's consciousness when she destroys a pregnancy. That woman, that, that, that young, no longer mother, is sitting in that chair and she is crying her eyes out. What am I going to say to her? What can I say to her? She already knows it. There is nothing I can say. She knows she's reaping what she sowed. Nobody needs to tell her. That would be heartless. She already knows that this is the very reason why when God created sexual intimacy, He put it in a box and He wrote on the outside of the box for husbands and wives only. Only. This is the reason. She's sobbing. She now knows that one deep, Purple night will end in the cruel rising of another sun. It is absolutely no need to tell that woman she has reaped what she has sown. And so she cries. There's nothing anybody can say to her. She cries and cries and cries. I tell you what, though. If she had come to me... Listen carefully now. If she had come to me before the abortion, the life is still here. Look, at Pastor, I made a terrible mistake. If she had come then... You know what I would have told her? I would have told her that the very same God who stood beside young, unwed mother Mary all through that nine month pregnancy is just as eager to stand beside this young, unwed mother right now. I know that the circumstances of their pregnancies are moral light years apart. Never mind. For the child at that Mary birth would grow up one day to become the Savior of the world. And when he died, he would die for every unwedded and wedded sinner who has ever lived on this planet. And once the gospel was clear to her, and she's holding on to that hope, you know what I would say to her next? I would then tell her, listen honey, you have got to tell your parents. Please. It turns out I know the parents. I know. You tell your parents. They will surely get over the shock and the sorrow of your mistake. They, I know, will quickly join with you in seeking to provide a healthy, secure environment for you and that unborn child of yours. I'm telling you. Hang on to that life. Don't, 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 don't let it go. Hang on to it. Listen. Go go to adoption.com. Get on the internet. You will see a map of the United States. Click any state you wish, and it will give you a listing of adoption agencies that are eager to help you. Go to birthmother.com. They'll tell you, there are people standing by who want to help you. You know what? There are Christian agencies who, who know that what you can never provide for that child can be provided by a loving young family somewhere that would love to have that baby. You can give that baby into a future, a future that God can anoint. You know what Arturo Rubinstein, pianist, you know him. Arturo Rubinstein, his mother was pregnant with him. They already had seven babies. They were a dirt poor family. Seven babies are already in the home. And the neighbor said, hey, listen, mama, you're just going to have to get rid of number eight. Because number eight is only going to take you down. She debated it. She debated it. And then made the decision, I will bring number eight into this world. And because she did, this planet has been made a better place through music. God said before you were ever formed, I looked at you, pianist, pianist. If they let him go, he will bless the human race. Listen, mama, don't you worry about that baby. God has already written in a book the future of that child. You let the baby come. Don't take the baby's life for the sake of your convenience. God will help you. Adoption.com, birthmothers.com. You know what I wish? I wish when I was visiting with her that we had Paulie's Place. We now have Polly's Place right here in our, in our parish. This is a team, a professional team of Adventist Christians here in Berrien County who are there for women in crisis. Young women and not so young women. I say, listen, honey, here's the phone number to Polly's Place. We happen to put it in the bulletin today. You can go to our website, pmchurch.org. There's a phone number. You can call that number. There are people. 3,200 crisis pregnancy teams across the United States. You can go to any yellow pages. Look under these words. Abortion alternatives. Because there will be the abortion clinics right here in Berrien County. There are a whole slew of them. But look to the category before abortion clinics. It will be abortion alternatives. AA. Look. And you'll find people standing by ready to help you. That's what I'd say to that woman. I'd say, listen, let me talk to your parents. You know what I would say? I would would say, society and the church have changed. I I, I really believe, madam, that you can come into this church, the Pioneer Memorial Church, the Seventh-day Adventist Church. I believe now that change has been sufficient so that you can come here without shame and without judgment. And you can bring that child into life. You know what, my friends? The reason there have been so many abortions in Christian America is because the Christian community has shamed those to where they have nowhere to go but to an abortionist and get rid of the evidence. The church has been called by Christ to live the compassion of of an eternal Father to these victims. I'll tell you what. It's when the church can get rid of its pharisaical clucking of the tongues. Hey, did you hear? Get off of it. The word is, you come here and you will be loved all nine months of your journey. Church, school, community. We're not going to dump you. That's what I'd say to her. I'd say, hold it, don't, just keep it there, keep it there. But she didn't come to me. She came after. She came with the pain and the hurt. She came no longer a mother. What am I going to say to her now? Do you know what I would say to her? I'd say to her what Jesus said. What would Jesus say? He came from the womb, one of those two wombs. He came from it. I don't believe it's a coincidence. That at the end of the very same gospel of St. Luke, as Jesus is going up the Shaley pathway to Calvary Summit to die for the human race, he turns to women who are surrounding him in the crowd and he speaks these words. He says to them in Luke 23, blessed are the wombs that never bore and the breasts that never nursed. I mean, can you believe that he's on his way to die? Do you mean to say that God might have a blessing for the womb that never was able to bring to full term her child, breasts that were never able to suckle that infant? You mean God can bless the young woman of abortion? Yep. How can it be? Because the very next sentence Jesus speaks, He's now hanging on the cross, and it's these words, Father, forgive them, for they do not know what they are doing. Ladies and gentlemen, let the record be clear. To every woman, to every man who has suffered through the pain and guilt and loss and death of abortion, God in Christ, that day on Calvary, forgave, forgave every human sin. Forgave it. You were in that prayer. Like that old gospel, like that old gospel song, I love it. I was on His mind. You were in that prayer. Look at this, Desire of Ages. That prayer of Christ for His enemies embraced the world. It took in every sinner, wedded or unwedded, I added the words, that had lived or should live from the beginning of the world to the end of time. Upon all rests the guilt of crucifying the Son of God. To all, forgiveness is freely offered. Whosoever will may have peace with God and inherit eternal life. My friends, blessed are the wombs that never bore. Father, forgive her, for she knew not what she was doing. Father, forgive him, for he is the reason she knew not what she was doing. Father, forgive them both, for they knew not what they were doing. There is no sexual sin that the cross of Christ did not pardon and does not forgive, not even abortion. Say, but come on! Do I? I can't get the. I can't get that life back. Hey, Jesus prayed for Roman soldiers who weren't going to give him his life back either. The issue is not getting the life back. God brought Jesus' life back, and God can take care of that life that you aborted. God is big enough to handle that little life. God, you trust Him. He can bring life back. You need to know, sir, madam. You need to know that you have been forgiven. You can start over. I love that. Psalm 147, verse 3. He heals the brokenhearted and binds up their wounds. Hallelujah. Hallelujah. I want to end with a picture. Oh, look at this picture, will you? What a story behind this picture. Have you seen this picture? Have you seen it in the news? We downloaded it. Got it on the internet. Look at that picture. What I want you to see there is that that is a human womb. That's a mother's uterus. Now, I'm going to tell you story. the story. The parents went to Vanderbilt University in Tennessee, the medical center at Vanderbilt, because their, their child had uh, spina bifida. You know, the spine went open. They, they had never done this before. It was risky. They had, they had no precedent. But the doctor said, if we don't go in to that little human being inside of you, Mama, and repair that spine, he will be, it, it, he will be drastically affected. And so they had to invent new tools, tiny little tools. The sutures were less than the width of a human hair. They said, okay, we're going to put you under, we're going to perform a C-section, open up your stomach your your abdomen we're going to remove the uterus and set it up on top of you so that's what they've done and then the doctor said we're going to have to go inside the uterus to get to that little life that's there and he cut the hole and after he had cut the hole his hand was just going over the top of the womb when shooting through the hole comes the tiny fist of that baby boy And the boy grabs the surgeon's finger. What you see there, the cameras were clicking because it was an experimental surgery. What you see is the baby holding on to the finger of his Savior. And he would not let go. In fact, we have another shot. Where the the, the surgeon lifted his hand up, and that little arm went shoo, straight up as, as long as he could hold onto that finger. I'm not letting you go now. You are my salvation, ladies and gentlemen. That that picture right there is a metaphor of Calvary. That's a metaphor of human salvation by the God of the universe, who knew we were lost unless He made radical intervention. And when that little hand shoots out and grabs the finger of the Savior, it's a picture of you, madam. It's a picture of you, sir, realizing you can't clean your life up, but God can save you right now if you will take that nail-scarred hand and hold on to Him by faith until He comes. That's the good news. I want to make an invitation today. This is the end of this little three-part series on sexuality within the human family. I want to make an invitation right now. If there's anybody here today that needs to reach out And grab hold of the hand of your Savior. Wherever you have been, it matters not. Sexual sin, non-sexual, it's not the issue now. If there's anybody here who needs to grab the hand of the Savior and hold on by faith to Jesus and start over completely, brand new beginning. I'd like to invite you to come, step out of that pew right now and come here to the front and I want to have a prayer with you. You're not saying a word about why it is you're coming for any reason at all. But if today you sense that Jesus is calling you to make a brand new beginning, I wish you'd come forward right here to the front.